Section 7 of The Memorable Thoughts of Socrates by Xenophon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scheib. The Memorable Thoughts of Socrates by Xenophon. Translated by Edward Beisch. Book 2, Chapter 1. A Conference of Socrates with Aristippus Concerning Pleasure and Temperance. In the same manner, likewise, he encouraged his hearers by the following arguments to support hunger and thirst, to resist the temptations of love, to fly from laziness and inure themselves to all manner of fatigues. For, being told that one of them lived too luxuriously, he asked him this question. If you were entrusted, Aristippus, with the education of two young men, one to be a prince and the other a private man, how would you educate them? let us begin with their nourishment as being the foundation of all it is true said aristippus that nourishment is the foundation of our life for a man must soon die if he be not nourished you would accustom both of them said socrates to eat and drink at a certain hour it's likely i should but which of the two said socrates would you teach to leave eating before he was satisfied to go about some earnest business him without doubt, answered Aristippus, whom I intended to render capable to govern, to the end that under him the affairs of the Republic might not suffer by delay. Which of the two, continued Socrates, would you teach to abstain from drinking when he was thirsty, to sleep but little, to go late to bed, to rise early, to watch whole nights, to live chastely, to get the better of his favorite inclinations, and not to avoid fatigues, but expose himself freely to them. The same still, replied Aristippus, and if there be any art that teaches to overcome our enemies, to which of the two is it rather reasonable to teach it? To him too, said Aristippus, for without that art all the rest would avail him nothing. I believe, said Socrates, that a man who has been educated in this manner would not suffer himself to be so easily surprised by his enemies, as the most part of animals do. For some perish by their gluttony, as those whom we allure with a bait, or catch by offering them to drink, and who fall into the snares, notwithstanding the fears and distrust. Others perish through their lasciviousness, as quails and partridges, who suffer themselves to be decoyed by the counterfeit voice of their females, and, blindly following the amorous warmth that transports them, fall miserably into the nets. "'You say true,' said Aristippus. "'Well then,' pursued Socrates, "'is it not scandalous for a man to be taken in the same snares with irrational animals? And does not this happen to adulterers, who skulk and hide themselves in the chambers and closets of married women, though they know they run a very great risk, and that the laws are very strict and rigorous against those crimes?' They know themselves to be watched, and that, if they are taken, they shall not be let go with impunity. In a word, they see punishment and infamy hanging over the heads of criminals like themselves. Besides, they are not ignorant that there are a thousand honorable diversions to deliver them from those infamous passions, and yet they run hand over head into the midst of these dangers. And what is this but to be wretched and desperate to the highest degree? I think it's so, said Aristippus. What say you to this, continued Socrates, that the most necessary 
and important affairs of life, as those of war and husbandry, are, with others of little less consequence, performed in the fields and in the open air, and that the greatest part of mankind accustom themselves so little to endure the inclemency of the seasons, to suffer heat and cold. Is not this a great neglect? And do you not think that a man who is to command others ought to inure himself to all these hardships? I think he ought, answered Aristippus. Therefore, replied Socrates, if they who are patient and laborious, as we have said, are worthy to command, may we not say that they who can do nothing of all this ought never pretend to any office? Aristippus agreed to it, and Socrates went on. Since then you know the rank which either of these two sorts of men ought to hold, amongst which would you have us place you? Me, said Aristippus. Why, truly, not amongst those that govern, for this is an office I would never choose. Let those rule who have a mind for it. For my part, I envy not their condition. For when I reflect that we find it hard enough to supply our own wants, I do not approve of loading ourselves, besides, with the necessities of a whole people, and that, being often compelled to go without many things that we desire, we should engage ourselves in an employment that would render us liable to blame if we did not take care to supply others with everything they want. I think there is folly in all this, for republics make use of their magistrates as I do of my slaves. Who shall get me my meat and drink, and all other necessities, as I command, and not presume to touch any of it themselves, so too the people will have those who govern the state take care to provide them with plenty of all things, and will not suffer them to do anything for their own advantage. I think, therefore, that all who are pleased with a hurry of affairs, and in creating business for others, are most fit to govern, provided they have been educated and instructed in the manner we mentioned. But, for my part, I desire to lead a more quiet and easy life. Let us, said Socrates, consider whether they who govern lead more happy lives than their subjects. Among the nations that are known to us in Asia, the Syrians, the Phrygians, and the Lydians, are under the empire of the Persians. In Europe, the Mauritians are subject to the Scythians. In Africa, the Carthaginians reign over the rest of the Africans. Which now, in your opinion, are the most happy? Let us look into Greece, where you are at present. Whose condition, think you, is most to be desired? That of the nations who rule, or of the people who are under the dominion of others? I can never, said Aristippus, consent to be a slave. But there is a way between both that leads neither to empire nor subjection, and this is the road of liberty, in which I endeavor to walk, because it is the shortest to arrive at true quiet and repose. If you had said, replied Socrates, that this way, which leads neither to empire nor subjection, is a way that leads far from all human society, you would, perhaps, have said something. For how can we live among men and neither command nor obey? Do you not observe that the mighty oppress the weak and use them as their slaves, after they have made them groan under the weight of oppression and given them just cause to complain of their cruel usage in a thousand instances? both general and particular? And if they find any who will not submit to the yoke, they ravage their countries, spoil their corn, cut down their trees, and attack them, in short, in such a manner that they are compelled to yield themselves up to slavery, rather than undergo so unequal a war. Among private men themselves, do not the stronger and more bold trample on the weaker? To the end, therefore, 
that this may not happen to me, said Aristippus. I confine myself not to any republic, but in sometimes here, sometimes there, and think it best to be a stranger wherever I am. This invention of yours, replied Socrates, is very extraordinary. Travellers, I believe, are not now so much infested on the roads by robbers as formerly, deterred, I suppose, by the fate of Sinus, Skyron, Procrustes, and the rest of that gang. What then? They who are settled in their own country, and are concerned in the administration of the public affairs, they have the laws in their favours, have their relations and friends to assist them, have fortified towns and arms for their defence. Over and above, they have alliances with their neighbours, and yet all these favourable circumstances cannot entirely shelter them from the attempts and surprises of wicked men. But can you, who have none of these advantages, who are, for the most part, travelling on the roads, often dangerous to most men, who never enter a town where you have not less credit than the meanest inhabitant, and are obscure as the wretches who prey on the properties of others, in these circumstances, can you, I say, expect to be safe merely because you are a stranger, or perhaps have got passports from the states that promise you all manner of safety coming or going? Or should it be your hard fortune to be made a slave, you would make such a bad one that a master would be never the better for you. For who would suffer in his family a man who would not work, and yet expect to live well? But let us see how masters use such servants." When they are too lascivious, they compel them to fast till they have brought them so low that they have no great stomach to make love. If they are thieves, they prevent them from stealing by carefully locking up whatever they could take. They chain them for fear they should run away. If they are dull and lazy, then stripes and scourges are the rewards we give them. If you yourself, my friend, had a worthless slave, would you not take the same measures with him? I would treat such a fellow, answered Aristippus with all manner of severity, till I had brought him to serve me better. But, Socrates, let us resume our former discourse. In what do they, who are educated in the art of government, which you seem to think a great happiness, differ from those who suffer through necessity? For you say they must accustom themselves to hunger and thirst, to endure cold and heat, to sleep little, and that they must voluntarily expose themselves to a thousand other fatigues and hardships. Now, I cannot conceive what difference there is between being whipped willingly and by force, and tormenting one's body either one way or the other, except that it is a folly in a man to be willing to suffer pain. How, said Socrates, you know not the difference between things voluntary and constrained, that he who suffers hunger because he is pleased to do so may likewise eat when he has a mind, and he who has suffers thirst because he is willing, may also drink when he pleases. But it is not in the power of him who suffers either of them, through constraint and necessity to relieve himself by eating and drinking the moment he desires it. Besides, he that voluntarily embraceth any laborious exercise finds much comfort and content in the hope that animates him. Thus, the fatigues of hunting discourage not the hunters, because they hope to take the game they pursue. And yet, what they take, though they think it a reward for all their toil, is certainly of very little value. Ought not they, then, who labor to gain the friendship of good men, or to overcome their enemies, or to render themselves capable of governing their families, and of serving their country, ought not these, I say, joyfully to undertake the trouble, and to rest content, 
conscious of the inward approbation of their own minds, and the regard and the esteem of the virtuous. And to convince you that it is good to impose labors on ourselves, it is a maxim amongst those who instruct youth that the exercises which are easily performed at the first attempt, and which we immediately take delight in, are not capable to form the body to that vigor and strength that is requisite in great undertakings, nor of imprinting in the soul any considerable knowledge, but that those which require patience, application, labor, and assiduity prepare the way to illustrious actions and great achievements. This is the opinion of good judges, and of Hesiod in particular, who says somewhere, To vice, in crowded ranks the course we steer, the road is smooth and her abode is near, but virtue's heights are reached with sweat and pain. For thus did the immortal powers ordain. A long and rough ascent leads to her gate, nor, till the summit's gained, doth toll abate. And to the same purpose, Epicharmus, the gods confer their blessing at the price of labor, who remarks in another place, Thou son of sloth, avoid the charms of ease, lest pain succeed. Of the same opinion is Prodicus, in the book he has written of the life of Hercules, where virtue and pleasure make their court to that hero under their appearance of two beautiful women. His words, as near I can remember, are as follows. When Hercules, says the moralist, had arrived at that part of his youth in which young men commonly choose for themselves, and show, by the result of their choice, whether they will, through the succeeding stages of their lives, enter into and walk in the path of virtue or that of vice, he went out into a solitary place fit for contemplation, there to consider with himself which of those two paths he should pursue. As he was sitting there in suspense, he saw two women of a larger stature than ordinary approaching towards him. One of them had a genteel and amiable aspect. Her beauty was natural and easy, her person and shape clean and handsome, her eyes cast towards the ground with an agreeable reserve, her motion and behavior full of modesty, and her raiment white as snow. The other wanted all the native beauty and proportion of the former. Her person was swelled by luxury and ease, to a size quite disproportioned and uncomely. She had painted her complexion, that it might seem fairer and more ruddy than it really was, and endeavored to appear more graceful than ordinary in her mien by a mixture of affectation in all her gestures. Her eyes were full of confidence, and her dress transparent, that the conceited beauty of her person might appear through it to advantage. She cast her eyes frequently upon herself, then turned them on those that were present, to see whether any one regarded her, and now and then looked on the figure she made in her own shadow. As they drew nearer, the former continued the same composed pace, while the latter, striving to get before her, ran up to Hercules, and addressed herself to him in the following manner. I perceive, my dear Hercules, you are in doubt which path in life you should pursue. If, then, you will be my friend and follow me, I will lead you to a path the most easy and most delightful, wherein you shall taste all the sweets of life, and live exempt from every trouble. You shall neither be concerned in war nor in the affairs of the world, but shall only consider how to gratify all your senses, your taste with the finest dainties and most delicious drink, your sight with the most agreeable objects, your scent with the richest perfumes and fragrancy of odors, how you may enjoy the embraces of the fair, repose on the softest beds, render your slumbers sweet and easy, 
and by what means enjoy, without even the smallest care, all of those glorious and mighty blessings. And, for fear you suspect that the sources whence you are to derive these invaluable blessings might at some time or other fail, and that you might, of course, be obliged to acquire them at some expense of your mind and the united labor and fatigue of your body, I beforehand assure you that you shall freely enjoy all from the industry of others, undergo neither hardship nor drudgery, but have everything at your command that can afford you any pleasure or advantage. Hercules, hearing the lady make him such offers, desired to know her name, to which she answered, My friends, and those who are well acquainted with me, and whom I have conducted, call me happiness. But my enemies, and those who would injure my reputation, have given me the name of pleasure. In the meantime, the other lady approached, and in her turn accosted him in this manner. I also am come to you, Hercules, to offer my assistance. I, who am well acquainted with your divine extraction, and have observed the excellence of your nature, even from your childhood, from which I have reason to hope that, if you would follow the path that leadeth to my residence, you will undertake the greatest enterprises, and achieve the most glorious actions, and that I shall thereby become more honorable and illustrious among mortals. But before I invite you into my society and friendship, I will be open and sincere with you, and must lay down this as an established truth, that there is nothing truly valuable which can be purchased without pains and labor. The gods have set a price upon every real and noble pleasure. If you would gain the favor of the deity, you must be at the pains of worshiping him. If you would be beloved by your friends, you must study to oblige them. If you would be honored by any city, you must be of service to it. And if you would be admired by all Greece, on account of your probity and valor, you must exert yourself to do her some eminent service. If you would render your fields fruitful and fill your arms with corn, you must labor to cultivate the soil accordingly. Would you grow rich by your herds, a proper care must be taken of them. Would you extend your dominions by arms, and be rendered capable of setting at liberty your captive friends, and bringing your enemies to subjection, you must not only learn of those that are experienced in the art of war, but exercise yourself also in the use of military affairs. And if you would excel in the strength of your body, you must keep your body in due subjection to your mind, and exercise it with labor and pains. Here pleasure broke in upon her discourse. Do you see, my dear Hercules, through what long and difficult ways this woman would lead you to her promised delights? Follow me, and I will show you a much shorter and much easier way to happiness. Alas, replied the goddess of virtue, whose visage glowed with a passion made up of scorn and pity, what happiness can you bestow, or what pleasure can you taste, who would never do anything to acquire it? You who will take your fill of all pleasures before you feel an appetite for any. You eat before you are hungry. You drink before you are athirst. And, that you may please your taste, must have the finest artists to prepare your viands, the richest wines that you may drink with pleasure. And to give your wine the finer taste, you search every place for ice and snow luxuriously to cool it in the heat of summer. Then, to make your slumbers uninterrupted, you must have the softest down and the easiest couches, and a gentle ascent of steps, to save you from any of the least disturbance in mounting up to them. And all little enough, heaven knows, 
for you have not prepared yourself for sleep by anything you have done, but seek after it only because you have nothing to do. It is the same in the enjoyment of love, in which you rather force than follow your inclinations, and are obliged to use arts and even to pervert nature to keep your passions alive. Thus it is that you instruct your followers, kept awake for the greatest part of the night by debaucheries, and consuming in drowsiness all the most useful part of the day. Though immortal, you are an outcast from the gods, and despised by good men. Never have you heard that most agreeable of all sounds, your own praise, nor ever have you beheld the most pleasing of all objects, any good work of your own hands. Who would ever give any credit to anything you say? Who would assist you in your necessity? Or what man of sense would ever venture to be of your mad parties? Such as do follow you are robbed of their strength when they are young, void of wisdom when they grow old. In their youth they are bred up in indolence and all manner of delicacy, and pass their old age with difficulties and distress, full of shame for what they have done, and oppressed with the burden of what they are to do squanderers of pleasures in their youth and hoarders up of afflictions for their old age on the contrary my conversation is with the gods and with good men and there is nothing excellent performed by either without my influence i am respected above all things by the gods and by the best of mortals and it is just i should i am an agreeable companion to the artisan a faithful security to masters of families a kind assistant to servants, a useful associate in the arts of peace, a faithful ally in the labors of war, and the best uniter of all friendships. My votaries, too, enjoy a pleasure in everything they either eat or drink, even without having labored for it, because they wait for the demand of their appetites. Their sleep is sweeter than that of the indolent and inactive, and they are neither overburdened with it when they awake, nor do they, for the sake of it, omit the necessary duties of life." My young men have the pleasure of being praised by those who are in years, and those who are in years of being honored by those who are young. They look back with comfort on their past actions and delight themselves in the present employments. By my means they are favored by the gods, beloved by their friends, and honored by their country, and when the appointed period of their lives is come, they are not lost in a dishonorable oblivion, but live and flourish in the praises of mankind even to the latest posterity. Thus, my dear Hercules, who are descended of divine ancestors, you may acquire by virtuous toil and industry this most desirable state of perfect happiness. Such was the discourse, my friend, which the goddess had with Hercules, according to Prodicus. You may believe that he embellished the thoughts with more noble expressions than I do. I heartily wish, my dear Aristippus, that you should make such an improvement of those divine instructions, as that you too may make such a happy choice as may render you happy during the future course of your life. End of section 7. Recording by Scheib.